0: Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this forum for European Philosophy event on what are prisons for. My name's Peter Dennis. I'm a fellow in philosophy uh, here at LSE, and we're delighted to have with us uh, on the far left uh, Kimberly Brownlee, who's senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of, of Sheffield. Uh, Andrew. Uh, University of Warwick. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Kimberly. <laughs> We've got. Christopher Bennett, who is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sheffield. And we've got Andrew Nielsen in the middle, who's Director of Campaigns uh, at the Howard League for Penal Reform. Now, I can't promise that we're going to be a particularly balanced panel. The idea is that we're going to be looking at some of the arguments uh, against imprisonment, some of the reasons why we might not want to uh, put people uh, in jail. Um, And to do that, we're going to be looking at two main questions. First of all, what's the purpose of punishment at all? And then we'll move fairly speedily uh, onto the question of whether prison really serves those purposes, whether it is a good form of punishment. And we'll bring in, uh, as well, the audience at various points. But Before we launch into those two questions, I'd like to invite each of our panel just to talk for about five minutes to give us an idea of their perspectives uh, on this topic, an idea of where they're coming from. So, Andrew, let's start with you.
1: Good evening, everybody um, I, uh, I uh, work for the Hardley for Penal Reform, which is a criminal justice charity. We believe we are the oldest penal reform organization in the world. Nobody has corrected us on that. We actually celebrate our one hundred and fiftieth birthday this year. Um, we were set up um, by admirers of John Howard, who was commonly Uh, thought of as the first prison reformer, a man who uh, toured prisons uh, after uh, being imprisoned in the Napoleonic Wars, became interested in the state of those prisons, wrote about them, ended up touring uh, the entirety of Europe uh, and dying in the Ukraine um, uh, while visiting prisons. So I won't say much more than that about about the Howard League. Um, Other than... um, I don't know if you can all see this, but this is the latest edition of our newspaper, which we imaginatively call The Howard. Um, But you will see it's a picture of Michael Gove, the Justice Secretary, and it says a new way forward. Um, And I think that uh, just to give a little bit of political context to the discussion we're going to have tonight, there is a space that is opened up politically around uh, prison reform and and a need for prison reform. Uh, Michael Gove is a very interesting appointment as Justice Secretary. He has a a reputation as a a public sector reformer, a radical. Um, If he can keep his job at the moment, he has um, a a few difficulties uh, with uh, Buckingham Palace uh, to get over. Um, And um, only a few weeks ago, we saw a landmark speech by David Cameron, the Prime Minister, on prisons, which Downing Street billed as the first time a Prime Minister spoke Purely about prison reform in, in decades. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. But what was certainly true about that speech uh, wasn't wasn't just what we usually see when politicians talk about prisons, which is quite a dry, technical conversation about reducing reoffending. Um, it was actually a conversation that um, did make a human argument uh, for reform, a humane argument for reform, and the context there is, as the Prime Minister said, that prisons are currently failing. Um, and the context is they are failing. The conditions in custody at the moment are appalling. Um, I very quickly caricatured, caricature a summary of, of prison policy in recent years. Under New Labour, the prison population doubled um, from the mid-1990s. Um, and that was effectively allowed to happen Um, because the Labour Party wanted to be seen as tough on crime and they had the money to build new prisons to to, um, 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 manage this uh, growth in the population. But then we had the coalition coming in with an austerity agenda um, and at first, Ken Clark, the Justice Secretary, led an attempt at reform, saying that there were too many people in prison, being quite upfront up about that, saying he wanted to reduce numbers because the, you know, they needed to reduce spending on prisons. That very quickly foundered. And then Chris Grayling came in as Justice Secretary, and he had no interest in talking about reducing prison numbers. He didn't address that at all. Uh, and instead, he found his austerity savings in reducing budgets, reducing staff, which fell? Frontline prison staff fell something like 30% uh, uh, from 2010. Um, and the result of that is a crisis. What we have seen now is huge increases in violence in prison, record levels of assaults against staff, prisoner-on-prisoner assaults. We've had the most murders in 2015 in prison since records began in the 1970s. Uh, there were eight alleged homicides in prison last year. The rate of suicide in prison is at a 10-year high. Um, and male self-harm, male prisoners cutting themselves or uh, applying ligatures, um, that has risen by 30% in the space of 12 months. And these are some of the facts that David Cameron addressed in his speech. So the government is looking at this issue. There is a sense that prisons are failing, that they are not doing what they are meant to do and we'll get to what they're meant to do or what they do do Um, and we have seen this big rhetorical change. Um, Michael Gove when he came in uh, one of the first things he did was um, reverse restrictions on prisoners receiving books which was something that the Howard League campaigned um, uh, against in 2014 and that was very much seen as a a symbolic gesture um, about acknowledging that the mistakes had been made. I want to say one, two, two final points uh, very quickly. One is um, practical and, and one is perhaps a bit more philosoph- philosophical. The practical point is that, and I would say this because the Howard campaigns for less people in prison, uh, but the numbers of people in prison is a crucial issue at the moment. Um, what we've got is um, Michael Gove saying he wants reform, but he's unwilling to be drawn on whether that means reducing the number of people in prison. Um, And so what's not really clear at the moment is, is the the government simply trying to get better prisons, but without the money to actually do that, because they're still having to cut the Ministry of Justice budget, and we might see further cuts in the budget tomorrow? um, tomorrow. Um, Or is this an attempt to do reform by other means? Are they looking to reduce numbers, but but not in in an upfront uh, way, in the sense that they would uh, um, introduce new legislation which Uh, For example, relax some of the mandatory sentencing, which judges, ties judges' hands and has helped to see the prison population grow. Uh, Or are they going to do something more technical, administrative, just to give prisoners more opportunities to earn their release? So we're unclear at the moment on what exactly is happening. Um, And then there's a philosophical point just to make, which is um, when when I I was thinking about what does the Ministry of Justice say prisons are for – And the phrase that they've often used is punishment and reform. This is a a phrase that's been used by Jack Straw when he was the Justice Secretary under a New Labour government. It's also a phrase that the coalition government has used. Um, But I think what's interesting there, and we might get into this as we have our discussion tonight, is that there is a fundamental tension between these two things. And that is not really acknowledged by the Ministry of Justice. That actually, if you are all about reforming people and then actually punishing them makes that harder. And similarly, if you're all about punishing people, then reforming them and being nice to them makes the punishment less clear. Um, and there's very little acknowledgement that there is this tension between these two principles. Um, and I think that uh, um, any grown-up discussion about prisons and what they're for, it has to get into the, the tension between those two principles. And, and perhaps the tension between those two principles is one of the problems... Uh, with the prison system at the moment. Kimberly,
0: let's go to you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So, uh, as a moral and political and legal philosopher, I think about prison and punishment in relation to various social justice questions and various social injustice questions. My, my current work focuses on what I've been calling the ethics of sociability. The, the idea that we are fundamentally social creatures, social beings. And what implications does this have for how we treat each other? So, so anyone who's studying philosophy will, will be familiar with how the term social justice is typically used in terms of a, you know, a Rawlsian uh, an equal distribution of um, goods within, amongst citizens. I tend to think of social justice more in terms of interpersonal justice. What do we owe each other as deeply social beings who fundamentally need to lead socially integrated lives? And I think one very big social injustice question that arises with relation to prison is that of deep social deprivation. And again, it's social deprivation in an interpersonal social sense. So someone who's put in prison, um, or you know, or more severely, someone who's put in isolation, someone who's segregated, or even worse, held in long-term solitary confinement—that's someone who's persistently denied minimally adequate access to decent human contact. And then, just more more generally, someone who's held in prison is most probably also denied. Minimally adequate access to decent human contact, because there's this question of decency. When you're put in an ordinary prison setting, you have no choice over your cellmate. Um, And this is someone with whom you're compelled to live, sometimes for a very long time. This is someone who may be struggling deeply, um, someone who may be cognitively impaired or or psychologically unwell. You're very radically limited in, in your options to associate with other people and your decent social bonds with family if you were lucky enough to have them they are stretched if not severed when you're Put in prison for a long time. Family members die, family members move, family members may not have have the resources to visit you if you're in an overspill prison from, from London that's not easily accessible for family. So a first sort of social injustice concern about prison and punishment from my perspective is how much does it deprive a person of the ordinary minimally adequate access to decent human contact that we have as a human right. The second social injustice issue relates to the fact that part of being social is wanting to contribute. Our social, our deep social needs are not just needs to access contact so that we are you know basically secure, um, have some emotional support. We also have a deep desire and indeed I think a need to contribute socially. Part of maturing you know to adulthood is to become someone on whom others can depend and indeed I think we want to be dependable we want to be depended upon and again when when someone is put in prison that radically compromises their opportunities to contribute socially and it does it in two ways one it you sort of stretches or severs their existing bonds it puts them in a context where it's difficult to sustain the ability to be a social contributor and it comes with a heavy stigma we are prejudiced against people who have committed offenses. Um, we are prejudiced against people who've spent time in prison. And for certain types of crimes, certain types of sentences, this is something you have to declare, and sometimes have to declare for the rest of your life, that you have committed, committed a crime. So I'll, I'll say more about prejudice in our, in our discussion, but it's through the lens of social justice and social injustice that I think um, there's a lot to be said in relation to punishment.
0: Thanks, Kimberly. Chris, tell us about your perspective. Yeah, so thanks very much. So
3: my perspective is going to be compatible with the two previous speakers. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, uh, what are prisons for is an interesting philosophical question. Uh, but it's not just a philosophical question. Uh, it's also a kind of urgent uh, political question and a question that should be higher up the political agenda than it is uh, at the moment. Uh, Prison is a hugely costly uh, institution. It's financially costly. Okay, that's one thing. It's, it's a very, you know, financially costly way to respond to crime. Uh, but it's also hugely human, hugely costly in human terms. And that's some of the stuff that we've been hearing about from the, the previous two speakers. Uh, so reading the uh, Harris, recent Harris Review that published in uh, the middle of 2015, about uh, self-inflicted harm uh, in custody uh, a question that they keep on returning to is what is the purpose of imprisonment uh, given that imprisonment very often involves putting already vulnerable people into a very harsh environment where you know there are, there are lots of uh, pressures on them that, that can lead to unacceptable levels of suicide and, and self-harm um, so that's one thing. Prison is not just about loss of liberty. Sometimes when we talk about uh, the justification for imprisonment then what people say is, look, someone who's well, this is one of the questions I guess we're going to come back to someone who's broken the laws of society ought to lose their freedom for a bit. You know, that, That's a kind of just punishment. But imprisonment is not just loss of liberty. It's not just a kind of curfew. It's the severing of the social environment that you did have, severing of you from your social the social environment that you did have, your ongoing life and commitments and so on, and your replacement into a quite different kind of social environment, which is a pretty unpleasant place to be, both physically and socially in many ways. So given that that's the reality, okay, given that prison is such a costly and potentially toxic and harmful institution, I would have thought that a society would only use it if it was really clear that that institution needed to be used for a certain important social purpose. But I think it's really unclear that anyone has made the case that there's a pressing rationale for imprisonment. And we'll come on to some more discussion about this as we, as we go on. But I, it's, not, it's not clear to me that that case has really been, you know, that the evidence conclusively speaks in favour of imprisonment, whatever you, th- whatever you think the purposes of punishment are. Indeed, generally speaking, uh, prisons are shady, secretive environments. They're environments that the public tends not to want to pay an awful lot of attention to. The American political scientist Albert Duzur has called prisons, he's called many criminal justice institutions generally, repellent institutions. And what he means by repellent is just that they repel the public gaze, they repel public interest. They make it very difficult for the public to find out what's going on there. What happens in prison has a very, despite there being, you know, certain amount of crime drama and so on being fashionable at the moment. What goes on in prisons has very low public profile. So the impression I get a bit is that criminal justice is the dirty business of society that society doesn't really want to pay attention to. And so things go on that if we actually paid attention to them, we wouldn't wouldn't really find acceptable. One of the things that I'm interested in thinking about is how we can open up the criminal justice system actually to a different kind of public input so that the public starts to pay more attention to what is done in prisons in their name rather than it just happening via elected politicians like Gove and Grayling and and so on. Okay,
0: thanks very much. Um, So we're going to move on now to our first uh, sort of main question of why we should... Punish people at all? And we'll stay with uh, Chris if that's okay uh, to to start us off, and the other two feel free to to interject and, and come in. So why do we punish people in the first place, and why put them in prison? Okay, so what I'm going to do just at the moment is just to, to give um,
3: punishment 101. So what are some what are some reasons for punishing people, and then later we'll we'll go on to try to connect that with you know, with imprisonment and see whether any of these rationales speak in favour of uh, imprisonment. So just, just very quickly, the kinds of things that people talk about and that the, the government talks about when it's talking about justification for criminal justice and so on, they talk about things like deterrence, okay, uh, uh, crime reduction, uh, incapacitation, okay, stopping people from committing further offences. They also sometimes talk about rehabilitation. That's not totally uh, a a dead idea. And they also talk about retribution. Now, I think that these can be classified into forward-looking and backward-looking justifications for punishment. So forward-looking views are basically saying, look, we punish people now in order to make things better in some way in the future. Okay? So that's, that's one type. You know, why do you punish people? Well, to protect people, to stop other crimes being committed in the future. So there's a kind of forward-looking justification. And then the retributive one says, well, actually, look, the main thing is to, is to address what was done, is to look back at the past action and say, we need to do justice to that action. Okay. I mean, does something good come out of it? Well, I'm less bothered about that. I just want to, do just, you know, I want to avenge the victim or you know, do justice to what was done. I want to give that person what they deserve. <coughs> so there are some pros and cons of these forward and backward-looking views. The forward-looking views give, a, give an answer to why we should punish people. It's something good comes out of it. Okay? Only punish people if something do, do, good does come out of it. Um, the forward-looking views, deterrence, incapacitation, and so on, are sometimes accused of missing what's important to crime as wrongdoing—the fact that someone has actually violated someone else's rights. Okay, so look, if you've just got public protection reasons, incapacitation—well, look, you can incapacitate someone if they've got a dangerous disease. You know, you're just—you're just—you know—you're just, you're just, you know, you're just m- making the public safe from them. It's not specific to wrongdoing. So it's a a kind of response that doesn't concentrate specifically on the fact that someone has has wronged another person, has has violated their rights, has done something unacceptable to another person. And same with deterrence. Hegel famously says deterrence is like raising a stick to a dog doesn 't matter that you 're dealing with a human being who, who should have known what they were doing and not done it you know deterrence is just making you know making them hurt so they don 't do it again in, in some way so the backward looking views okay the view that just says look someone 's got to be accountable for what they did those views have something to be said for them, I think, because they they make central the fact that look someone someone did something that was unacceptable, uh, so I think that there 's something to be said for that kind of view. Does it get you to actual punishment i 'm not sure what it gets you to i think is apology okay that 's the basis for our practice of apologizing, admitting responsibility, holding one another to account, and so on i 've got a theory of punishment which is called the apology ritual that says you can you know if punishment is going to be justifiable, then it should be a bit like a ritualistic version of an apology or something. How much can you get out of that well that 's actually like punishment that 's an interesting that 's an interesting question but anyway so we'll come back to we 'll come back to whether any of those uh, justifications are any good, and if they are any good, whether they can connect to imprisonment
0: uh, Kimberly, would you yeah. agree with that distinction between forward-looking and backward-looking justifications?
2: Um, yeah, no, it's, it's 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 a it's it's a good philosophical distinction. Um, I, I think uh, in in practice, uh, we we might want to. Yeah, so as philosophers, you know, we, we work in the realm of the abstract and the ideal. And I think on, on the ground, there's the question of, if we're going to be able to legitimate practice of punishment, are we attending to whether or not we have a fair playing field? Um, so, you know, Ronald Dworkin's got a well-known quotation that there's no greater inequality than to treat differently placed people equally. So how, how demanding are our standards when we ask you to abide by the law? Um, when we are doing that backward-looking assessment of how serious is, how serious was this offense, are we also looking at what are the conditions in which you committed it? Uh, you know, are you living in a criminogenic environment? You know, were you exposed to domestic abuse as a child? Were you did you witness domestic violence? Uh, did you have a socially economically deprived background? You know, the people who tend to find themselves in prison are, they, they represent, you know, much more so in the general population, people who have had a chaotic, deprived, or difficult childhood. So I think that, um, you know, certainly we want to reflect on the general questions of where should we orient our attention when we're trying to punish, but also more specifically, you know, what, what, what are the, what's the background social justice conditions in which we're punishing Um, and uh, I'll I'll come back if we're going to get a chance to assess these more then I'll I'll pause there and and see more in a minute
0: okay Andrew
1: yeah um, I think the on the question of you know punishment why do we do it Um, I I think there is a socially valuable element to punishment and that socially valuable element is is an expression of disapprobation Mm. that society is saying this is wrong Um, the big question then, though, is, well, what, you know, what then is the punishment? How long is the punishment? How much is the punishment? You know, um, and I don't think necessarily um, um, there is much social value beyond just that initial bit, the bit of saying, of expressing disapprobation and society coming together and saying, this is wrong, and you've done wrong. And I think this comes back to Chrissy's point about a ritual apology, almost. You know that, that that's the really valuable bit. Mm. Um, the rest uh, is up to individual people's um, desire for punishment. Some people quite like to see people punished. Some people feel quite uncomfortable with it. Um, I think obviously the one of the reasons why the prison population in this country has doubled since the mid nineteen nineties is because public opinion has been quite punitive and has wanted to see longer prison sentences, more people going to prison for more reasons and politicians have served that up in legislation um, I think the only other thing I'd say is actually just to remind us all when we are talking about prison as the punishment that prison is actually a very modern thing uh, we all take it as a, as a, as a given um, it's something that is a, 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 I absolutely agree with Chris that it's a it's it, it, it's not very welcoming to the public gaze. We don't really, um, we don't really know very much about what goes. I, if, you, if you're me, you know what goes on in prisons because I have to visit them. But you know, most people don't don't really know what life in, is like inside prison, and the system itself doesn't really help that. Um, but actually, prisons are really very modern. Um, they're what 200 years old. Before that, there weren't prisons. Um, if we look at what punishment was um, then, it was things like flogging, the use of the stocks, um, deportation to the colonies, um, capital punishment. And prisons, insofar as they existed at all, were kind of just dungeons that people were held in briefly while they awaited the actual punishment, which was you know, corporal or capital, uh, or, or as I say, being deported uh, to Australia or wherever. Um, and I think it's just useful to keep that in, in mind because I do think uh, one of the strange things about prisons is that we do, you know, I think, treat them as if they're just the absolute given of our society now, uh, that you have to have them. Um, and actually, then you think, well, hold on. We, we, As a human race, we lived for thousands of years without prisons. I'm not saying that some of the alternatives were welcome, although I think there's an interesting question about whether receiving 30 lashes for stealing some fruit or being imprisoned for three months for stealing some fruit, which would you rather have? You know, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that's undoubtedly true um, is about, about the rising prison population is that uh, to some degree that has been a reflection of the fact that we no longer use uh, corporal punishment, or indeed in this country, capital punishment. Uh, and I think there's an interesting question there about about what is worse, imprisonment or, you know, as I say, being flogged or whatever. Just
0: to pick up on one, one thing that you said there, this ritualistic uh, idea that Chris has introduced, because there's something very ritualistic about uh, flogging or corporal punishment. Um, you mentioned the length of sentences Is there a sense in which, in order for a ritual of apology to take place, the sentence has got to be not a short sentence for a severe sort of crime? Perhaps we're prefiguring a sort of question. The second question we're going to look at uh, a little bit. But if this ritual of apology has got to take place, can that all take place on the in a court hearing, or does there need to be some weighty prison sentence in order for people to feel that that's taken place?
1: I, I don't think so myself, although I think there are perhaps some... I mean, again, we come back to what individual, individuals want to see. As, what do you think is punishment? The more punitive we'll see um, what you're talking about as just a slap on the wrist, not enough, you know. Um, I do think part of the problem uh, with prisons is that we have fallen into a sort of numbers game uh, where... Um, so, for example... Um, the uh, Hatton Garden um, robbers were sentenced uh, earlier this month. And uh, they received, uh, on a- well, on average, they received um, sentences like eight years. And the Metro newspaper the next day said this was a soft sentence. It was the, at the absolute upper end of the sentencing guidelines for burglary, which is what it was. Um, but the Metro said this was, this was um, you know, soft justice. Um, well, eight as a number doesn't sound very much, does it? If it perhaps had been given out as days rather than years, it would have sounded like a lot more. And I do think that there's just a, a problem with numbers, partly, and, and, and some numbers don't sound like a lot. And the public generally don't really think about it as actual time. I mean, we are, t- you know, imagine uh, effectively locking yourself in your bedroom for eight years, being allowed out for an hour. A day to kind of walk around your garden and then you go back in, and then when you start to think about it like that, you start to realise that's actually a, you know a serious sentence. Chris, would you like to well, I mean, come back on
0: that, what is yeah, your idea so of the so ritual? D- stuff? Yes,
3: so I mean, I guess I, I, I you, so I guess I think that in the case of apologies for really serious bad things, I mean, in a way, the verbal apology becomes a bit less important, and what becomes more important is what you're prepared to do to. To put yourself on the line to back up your back up your words, and that there is some role there from from making up for what you've done. So I mean, that's that's meant to be the kind of idea. But you know, what's enough to make up for something like the Hatton, burglar, <laughs> Hatton uh, you know, Road burglary? I mean, uh, uh, so I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that we do need to think about that. Okay. Uh, because I think disappro- you know, the expression of disapprobation for genuinely important wrongdoing—well, that's an important thing that a society should should do. Uh, how does it do it? What, what's its kind of language? You know, what's its symbolic language? And what's enough? What's proportionate? I, I, I'm not sure that we, have, as a society, have a very good way of of, of thinking about what that is. And so we just—you know—as Andrew says, we just revert back to what the default position is. The default thing is that we've got these prisons you know, since the you know, uh, late 18th, early 19th century with the rise of industrial society. These prisons were built. Uh, I mean, you know, radical social theorists have some interesting things to say about the coincidence and timing there. One of the great things about about Michel Foucault's book, Discipline and Punish, is that it raises exactly this question. You know, all over Europe, about the same time, imprisonment became the main default uh, mode of of punishment. Why did that happen? Uh, I mean, I think one of the questions that's going to come out of this talk is that there, there aren't really good reasons that connect to any justifiable rationale for punishment. So what is the real explanation then for why that why that happened so anyway I don't know one of the things that we need to do as a society is to get better at thinking about what proportionate disapprobation for for really serious uh, unacceptable wrongs is I don't think we really know how to do that very well
0: okay well we heard a bit from our from our panel I'm going to take some audience questions if you've got a question could you put your hand up and keep it up I'm going to take two or three questions in a row We'll try to do it that way. There's a gentleman right at the front here.
4: Thank you. No, it's very good about prisons. Now you, I mean, we, Today we have a democracy in Europe, but when you refer to Europe and prisons, you have to take account of the fascist regimes in the 30s, and some people also say the communist regimes in Eastern Europe were according to uh, liberal democratic values, people have been imprisoned uh, offenses that wouldn't be considered offenses in a democratic society. Could you say, we, now we have democracies and these values fall for, forward, for, for, uh, and other ca- some countries you know, we would look upon p- uh, our prison and political reasons. So could you say something about that, the relation between imprisoned democratic society where you've got relevant principles and uh, you know, other countries, the past of Europe or even now where uh, prison, uh, people are imprisoned for what well, will be to political reasons?
0: Okay, thank you. Let's take another question, and we'll come back to this one. Yes, there's a lady in the middle there.
2: Thank you. Would it be too cynical to venture that? Increased in imp- level of imprisonment, longer sentences, stricter parole boards, etc., etc., are perhaps the only way that our government can give a sense of false reassurance to social formations whose jobs, pensions, set of values, and futures are increasingly insecure. Perhaps our politicians think that if someone is on zero-hour contract. I, at the epitome of insecurity,
0: but behaving himself, and I saying himself, not herself. Perhaps this person needs to think that the lazy bastard who lives on ill-gotten gain, gains needs to be locked up and punished. Thanks. Uh, and that's another question uh, right at the front here. Um, I,
1: was, I was wondering whether any of the panel members had insights as to how we should treat offenders relating to financial crimes.
0: Okay, good. Um, right, so there's a first question was about whether prison looks different in a democracy versus being imprisoned in a fascist or communist uh, regime. Um, Kimberly, would you like to take that one?
2: Um, yeah, no, that's an interesting, interesting question. Uh, the the thought that came to mind was some work that's been done by Nicola Lacey, who has observed that um, when our society is facing certain kinds of security threats, be they perceived or genuine, we tend to view character as constitutive or probative of guilt. So we tend to um, you know, identify certain types of behaviors or appearances of behaviors as criminal. Uh, so, you know, uh, issuing ASBOs, Or, um, you know, criminalizing the status of being a migrant, uh, you know, suspecting people of terrorism. So, you know, I don't think a democracy is a guarantee against, uh, you know, sort of radical and illegitimate views of people, uh, sort of criminalizing their status. Um, quite, quite possibly things are, are sort of much, much worse in, in fascist countries, but we, we don't... The fact that we have a democracy does not mean we're on track in terms of how we're viewing uh, people and our approaches to punishment.
0: Yeah. Okay. And the next question uh, was about whether there might be ulterior motives behind long prison sentence, whether prison sentences could be instruments of social control. Uh, perhaps... Chris, would you like to say something about that? Yeah, I mean,
3: um, so, I mean, one of the last things I said was that I don't think that there's necessarily a a good considered rationale uh, for imprisonment that relates back to the, the, you know, if there are justifiable purposes of punishment. And then that raises the question, well, what's really going on? Uh, And and one thing that that might be going on is that there's a bit of political theatre. Um, You know, uh, and that uh, government needs to be seen to be doing something really important, to be taking strong action against something, Uh, given that perhaps, you know, either... Uh, you know, it, it's it's not taking action on the, on the other important stuff, or else just uh, you know, in a globalised world with big political and social forces, you know, there, there just aren't things. You know, there aren't things that it can do to to remedy the the insecurities that we're, we're actually living under. So you know, it, it engages in it it, it 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 ramps up the the law and order rhetoric in order to be seen to be doing something. I mean, I don't know, you know. That's, uh, that seems like a plausible explanation to me, but I'm not a social scientist, so
0: you, know, you, should, you should take what I say with a pinch of salt. But um... Andrew, the third question was quite a practical sort of question to do with which kinds of crime should be punished, financial crime. Yeah,
1: I mean, on one level, um, punish, punishing someone with imprisonment for financial crime... Uh, it doesn't tick as many of the the boxes that Chris mentioned. I mean, you know, there the, are the people who've committed financial crime tend not to be, for example, a threat to the public. See? You know, they, 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 um, you know, if you imprison a rapist, you are partly imprisoning them because you are fearful that they will rape again. If you imprison someone who's defrauded a bank. Um, Okay, admittedly, they might find it harder to defraud a bank while they're in prison, but it, it, if you see what I mean, there's, a, there, there's, um, there's less of an obvious reason to cage them in the way that you, we cage violent criminals. Um, then again, there is a sort of um, another point, which is that this comes back to um, justice dealing with um, class. You know, that In the end, people who commit financial crimes tend to be middle class. Uh, people who commit violent crimes tend to be at working class. Uh, so if you have prison for one group, but then not for the other, then you're creating a socially unjust system. Um, it's quite interesting in America. But then again, there's another question. So in America, I remember uh, uh, Martha Stewart uh, was in court for uh, a white collar crime, financial crime. Uh, <coughs> I can't remember the, the, her precise involvement, but she was involved. Uh, and uh, her lawyers... Uh, were working on a very creative um, idea where they they were proposing that instead of her being sent to prison she would donate millions of dollars to build schools in New York now on one level you might say well she shouldn't be able to buy her way out of the justice system but on another level you could say well hold on that's socially a lot more useful than having Martha Stewart in a cell for three years
0: Um, you know it's a tricky one thanks well, we'll stay with you if we can uh, to talk about the second uh, discussion question, which is also of a practical nature. We talked about sort of uh, the theoretical points about why we want to punish people uh, in the first place, and the second question we're going to look at concerns uh, whether prisons are a good way of achieving uh, those goals. Is it necessary and proportionate to prison to imprison people, uh, for example? and whether our attitudes to imprisonment are actually compatible with some of these democratic uh, values that we profess to hold. So, Andrew, let's start with you on that. Okay, so Chris talked
1: about um, the functions, uh, Punishment 101, the functions of, 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 of prison, what's commonly codified as the purpose of, of imprisonment, and, and, and those were um, retribution, punishment, um, deterrence, incapacitation, uh, and then rehabilitation. Um, And I was thinking beforehand about ranking those in my head as to, you know, how much prison does represent these purposes. I think number one, the the top of the list would absolutely be retribution. You know, prison is fundamentally, first and foremost, undeniably a punishment. You are taking someone's liberty away and they can't, you know, They have to be in that prison. They have no choice in the matter. Um, So it's 100% doing that job really well. Um, I think it does kind of well at incapacitation, but not quite as well as prisons evangelists would, would say. Um, there is quite a bit of evidence that while you incapacitate someone for the length of their sentence, to some degree you're deferring offending, potentially. We certainly see people more likely to offend when they leave prison than when they went in. Um, also, there, there are arguments that have been made that you, al- you almost create a vacancy in the criminal jobs market that will be naturally filled when you imprison somebody. Um, So again, it's not really having the impact that you might quite think. Um, And there's some academic evidence that the fall in crime, uh, which we have seen in recorded crime in in this country and in other countries, uh, that um, the the massive increase in the prison population has, has, has contributed a little bit to that fall in crime, but actually much bigger factors were things like not so much in recent years, but broadly improving economic standards. Um, the uh, improvements in home security and in car security. The most, the biggest volume crime was property crime. It's very hard to break into a car now, uh, um, and, and 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 that's actually a, a big, big part of it. And then also the, the the decrease in value of things like televisions. I mean, if you burgle someone's house, uh, you can try and carry out the giant flat-screen TV they probably have, be quite difficult to do it without anyone noticing, and you won't get very much money for it selling it second hand. So there's, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why crime has fallen, and indeed we have seen countries where prison numbers have fallen and crime numbers have fallen. There's no automatic uh, connection between the two. But nonetheless, incapacitation has some clearly some success, uh, and, and, and there we go for prison there. Um, I think I, I'm a lot more dubious about deterrence... I don't think, ultimately, most people commit crime as rational actors. They're not thinking, shall I do this or shall I not? They're not, I don't think, most of the time, weighing up uh, the consequences if they get caught. Again, there is some evidence that the fear of getting caught is the, 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 the biggest inhibiting uh, uh, thing on people. Um, but actually, the length of sentence, there's, there's, there's a lot, not a lot of public knowledge amongst even um, people committing crime about what they may or may not get um, for that and the fact that the government has increased the sentence by a year uh, you know there's, no, there's very little evidence that that actually then has an impact on, on the crime rate um, and it's certainly not very good at sp- we talk about deterrence in two ways general deterrence which is the idea that um, I will not commit this crime uh, because I, um, I have seen what happens to other people and then there's specific deterrence, the idea that I will not commit this crime because I've been sent to prison and I know what it's like and I don't want to go back. Well, the reoffending rates suggest that specific deterrence is really not very effective. About two thirds of people on short prison sentences uh, go on to reoffend and often reoffend more seriously and more frequently than before. Um, so, a bit more dubious about deterrence. And then um, you might be surprised then, because I am the the man from the Howard League for penal reform, but I actually would rank rehabilitation at the very bottom of that list. I think prisons are hopeless at rehabilitating people. Um, They make people worse. And this comes back to the point I made at the beginning about the tension between punishment and reform. Um, Prisons are not good at reform because everything about them is about damaging people's chances of reform they weaken links to family, they remove people from employment, Uh, they exacerbate mental health problems, they introduce people to drug abuse, Uh, they are violent environments um, of distress and despair. How that is meant to make you better as a person, you know, one of the things I often talk about in the media when I'm asked to comment on prison overcrowding is, you know, the kind of magical thinking that we have when you have people lying on their bunks for 23 hours out of 24 hours a day as we have in many prisons in this country because there aren't enough staff to get them out of their cells and into workshops and classrooms. It takes a special kind of magical thinking to think that somebody lying on that bunk doing nothing with mental health problems maybe, drug and alcohol addictions possibly, you know, these are the reasons they've offended, uh, that somehow they're going to come out better people after that experience you know I, I just think it's crazy
0: so that's quite a ranking of the purposes of of prison uh would others agree with that with that ranking kimberly um, yeah yeah
2: no i i absolutely i think um i think that's that's got it right and and it's sort a of reflect something about our society and what we actually value um that it you know, seems to do you know, not just retributive justice, but, you know, sort of disproportionate, you know, retributive justice, and in terms of rehabilitation, um, the the Ministry of Justice issued a report in 2014 (laughs) called Transforming Rehabilitation, where they identified many factors that seem to be correlated with desistance, what prompts people to not reoffend—and and and all of them seem to be factors that are put at risk or undermined when you put someone in prison. so having hope and motivation, having someone who believes in you, um, having a family, uh, having something to give to others, um, employment, sobriety, as uh, you know, Andrew mentioned, employment. And I think one that's quite interesting is, is not identifying yourself as an offender. Um, and I think that actually, that, that links into something quite interesting, is the way we describe people who have committed offences... Um, you know, we use essentialist language. We we talk about someone who's committed an offense as an offender, you know, and that's that's actually just the that's the technical sort of. You'll find that in the reports language. You know, the more common language is you know criminal, common criminal, fennel, fe- felon, crook, um, and then we have sub-taxonomies, murderers, rapists, thieves. We reduce lives to single acts sometimes to mistakes. Um, you know, like I don't mean to, to in any way doubt the seriousness of the acts that are done, but for every person who commits an offense, there's a fuller story there. Um, and, and I think what's interesting is in other areas, we've learned not to use reductive language. You know, when we talk about people with disabilities, we now say people with disabilities. We don't say autistics, handicaps retards um, albinos we use language that allows you to be a fuller person than just one feature Um, and so you know the response might come back okay if you're a person with a disability that's not a feature that's under your control but in some cases it actually is under your control if you engage in risky activity that results in a disability and in the case of some offending that's not under your control either or in the sense you're not morally blameworthy if you're held strictly liable um, you're not viewed, you're not morally blameworthy. So, so it's not that, you know, okay, this, it's okay to reduce a life with this type of behavior and not that. Um, and even if it were, we don't do any good in that we force people to identify with having offended. Um, so I think, I think rehabilitation is a, is a very admirable objective. I don't think prison and the way we view offending actually supports it.
0: Good. Uh, Chris, would you agree with Andrew's ranking that Rehabilitation is actually at the bottom of the list of the purposes of of prison, and perhaps retribution is is at the top
3: um, well, yes, I mean, in the sense that that you know given that the way prisons actually are, uh, and Andrew knows a, a whole lot about that, uh, then that seems like a very sober and realistic uh, assessment i mean um, i mean. I suppose a question is, could prisons be different in some way? I mean, you know, Kimberly said philosophers are always engaging in ideal theory. You know, we're thinking, you know, you know don't, don't just take your society for granted. Could, could things be different in some way? I mean, really radical thinking is, you know, get rid of prisons altogether. Just, you know, if you were designing society from scratch... Would you, would you put prisons in as a way of, of dealing with the social problems that, that underlie crime? Or would, would, you do, would you do that? Well, I mean, maybe that's too ideal. But, you know, if you, if you weren't thinking about getting rid of prisons altogether, could you have a different model? I mean, it seems that some other countries have uh, different models. So, for instance, in the Harris Review that I was talking about on self-inflicted deaths in custody, uh, they quote the Norwegian model. Okay, so for them, the Norwegian model is that uh, prison just is a loss of liberty. When you're in prison, you lose your rights to liberty, but you keep all the other rights that uh, a Norwegian citizen would would have. And as far as possible, uh, your life goes... You know, you're not allowed to leave, okay? You're not allowed to dictate exactly where you go and have freedom of association and so on. So you lose some liberty rights, but you're... You know... uh, more or less, you keep the rights that uh, you know you w- you would have had otherwise. I mean, is that a way that Britain could potentially do imprisonment? Well, if we were talking about something like that, then you can you know we might get different answers to 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 the to the questions that we've had. I mean, incapacitation, for instance. I mean, often criminal actions come out of really desperate. Uh, personal circumstances, uh, and actually having a bit of time away from that or away from that situation, you know, might not be a you know a, a ridiculous thing for someone to want to have at some point. So, some abolitionists, some people who thought about getting rid of prison or, or totally transforming prison, have, have thought about uh, having sanctuary places. Where they mean, you know, a, cha- a place where you can go and just, you know, be out of that difficult situation that, that that led to the to the criminal action. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, that that prison, as it is at the moment, is a very good good way of doing that. But, you know, could it possibly be? I also disagree with Andrew. Actually, I don't think prison is a good way to carry out retribution, uh, to, to, to to carry out punishment. But but that's because I don't think that punishment is really about making people suffer in any way, shape and form. I mean, if you just thought that's what retribution was really about, just make someone go through hell. Someone who's done something bad, make them go through hell. Uh, Then maybe imprisonment would be a good good way to do that or something. But I I don't think that that's a sensible way to to think about retribution or an acceptable way to think about retribution. If, if, If doing justice or retribution is, is important, then it's about making up for the, you know, paying your debts or, or, or something like that, making up for what you did. You know, just making yourself suffer by being locked in a, a cell for 23 hours a day, you know, that's not a good way for make, making up for, for anything. So I'm just going to d- disagree that punishment really is carried out, retributive punishment is really carried out by, by prisons either. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm mystified. I'm mystified as to what prisons are for. what <laughs> I think about it. Hmm.
0: Andrew, do you want to come back on on that? There's some disagreement there.
1: No, I I, I, I can see that I I, I can see um, Chrissy's point. I do think that um, a function of the justice system uh, should be reparation, um, repairing harm, uh, and in that sense. Um, prison isn 't doing that prison is, you know that 's why we developed community sentencing and we have people doing things like unpaid work or you have restorative justice where um, people who 've committed crimes uh, meet their their victims um, and uh, a kind of process of reconciliation is is, is, is brokered by professionals. Um, I think all that is much more positive uh, because it is about reparation about repairing harm i don 't think Uh, I didn't even mention that, talking about prisons, because I don't think prisons do that at all. Um, I think uh, I'll just pick up on Chrissy's point about Norway, um, just to put some cautionary notes in about whether things are that great anywhere else. Um, It is true that the Norwegian prison population has historically been a lot lower than ours, and it's true, certainly, that they've put... um, uh, reform and rehabilitation more at the centre uh, of their system. Uh, they use prison very much as a last resort, traditionally. I've been to Norway a few times to see what they do, but there are even in Norway, uh, the pressures of globalized, um, our globalised economy has, has, has had its effect. So um, one of the things that's um, really, if you're um, British... You find really surprising about Norway. This is a positive thing to start with, is that. uh, But but, you know, it's a sign of a different mentality about these things. Is in Norway, uh, they have a waiting list for prison. You're sentenced, but you don't go to prison straight away. If they haven't got any spaces, you get put on a waiting list, and you go to prison when a space is available. (laughs) I think it's really sensible. But you know, Uh, obviously, if you've committed a very very serious crime, they they find a space for you. Um, but, uh, but but there are many people who are just... T- and, they, and they schedule it in. They schedule it in. Um, they, they take uh, time off work so they can go and serve their prison sentence. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, less uh, an- Another positive thing. I went to a prison called Holden, which is their new prison. It's a kind of show prison in Norway. Um, and in Holden, they have conjugal visits. We don't have that in this country. They don't just have... Uh, they, ha- they have um, rooms... Um, with uh, beds and uh, cabinets with condoms in them. The staff let the um, partners of the prisoners in and then, um, you know, whatever happens, happens. They also have um, a kind of chalet in the middle of the prison that families can spend whole weekends with uh, the prisoner um, and people um, apply to have use of this chalet. I can't imagine what the medias uh, here would say about something like that if it happened here. However, there is a dark side to this, which is that you have to be a Norwegian citizen to access that, shall And a a, a lot of other services, actually, in Norwegian prisons. Um, And interestingly, more and more prisoners in Norway are not Norwegian. They are from Eastern Europe, and they are in for drug-related crimes. And in fact... The Norwegian prison population is growing to the point that they're currently renting prison cells off the Netherlands. So, uh, you know, Norway has some good things that we could learn from, but it too is, has its problems.
0: Kimberly, could I bring you in here? So, Chris has said that retribution is at least part. To do with making amends, and in fact, that might be more what retribution's really about. Andrew's made a distinction between retribution on the one hand and reparation on the other. Would you acknowledge a distinction between them, or would you say that reparation is really about making things right?
2: Um, so the, there's a there's a there's a thought in in the literature, you know, and Chris uh, Chris and, and Anthony Duff are two very well. Well non defenders of this idea that, um, you, know, that sort of you, you can go through you know, the ritual of punishment, the ritual process it's sort of it's a way of demonstrating um, through a formalized process that you that you are repenting, that you and, and 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 Anthony Duff frames this in quite strong terms that you have to actually go through punishment as a secular form of penance. It's sort of a necessary process uh, in order to reinstate yourself and to to show yourself to have been to be repentant. Um, and it, com- you know, it competes with another idea in the, the philosophical literature, which is defended by um, someone like John Tessiolis, for example, that you're, if you are repentant in advance of punishment, if you, if you really you know, sort of seek to, to you know, repair and restore, and are very deeply apologetic, that, that actually. You know, that's one reason to be merciful. That's a reason not to impose a punishment on you, not to send you to prison or indeed to you know, give you a much shorter sentence as, as an acknowledgement of your of your well-being, as someone who's well-wishing, well-intentioned, that uh, you know, we, we shouldn't view imposing the punishment as part of your repentant process, but rather your repentance is evidence that we should change the process of how we treat you. Um, I tend to be a bit more on that side on the Tascios side that uh, you know we should be responsive to to your contribution to the dialogue, if we see societies you know, communication of condemnation as its attempt to engage a person in a dialogue about their behavior, it has to attend to what that person then tries to say in response. If they are trying to send a letter to the family of the victim or if they're trying to you know, sort of show through, through good faith efforts that they want to restore themselves, that needs to be heeded by the community.
0: Well, let me bring in our audience again at this point. Uh, there's a number of hands uh, going up. Again, I'll take two or three in a row. There's a lady in the sort of fourth row there. Yep.
2: So you mentioned a little bit about how the prison system in Norway is, has certain leniencies, and then we know about prison systems in America, how tough they can be. But I'd just like to know if there's any evidence to suggest um, how that impacts uh, recidivism rates. So if someone's more likely to offend, if a prison's more harsh, or if they're um, less likely to offend because of that.
0: Thank you. Uh, there's a gentleman uh, in the middle. Thanks. Thanks. Um- Do any of the panel think that state-imposed incapacitation is ever justified as a response to crime? And if so, do you have any suggestions as to better alternatives than what we might call prisons? Thank you. And there's a gentleman at the back uh, on my right
3: Just picking up on the um, Norway theme again, I I think it's there somewhere, um, there's been experiments with weekend prisons, as I understand it, so um, people are uh, free during the week, and then, so that means they keep their job, which then means they keep the house um, financially, and then they get sent back to prison on the weekend, which is when typically there might be more likely to be with gangs or whatever and cause trouble and and maybe the panel could say whether picking up on the point about you know could prison be better um something like that which is kind of a halfway house would would that be a solution could that work over here if it it always has it been tried over here i don't know
0: okay thanks and we can probably squeeze in just one more question yeah there's a lady at the back on my left (laughs)
4: <laughs> um, I wondered in the pa- if the panel had any thoughts on prisons as a function of the UK economy um, or how they function in the UK economy uh, particularly with regard to increasing privatisation
0: Okay, great so there's a question, so a very direct question about whether the Norwegian system has lower rates of recidivism um, there's a more uh, Principal question about whether incapacitation is ever justified uh question about whether a sort of halfway house solution would work again a kind of norwegian model with weekend prisons and there's a question about the relationship between prisons and the economy whether prison services should be privatized so who would like to jump in on any of those andrew
1: i'll, I'll respond to the two norway related questions so uh, on the reoffending, it is actually quite difficult to compare different jurisdictions on reoffending because they record things in different ways. Um, if you know, Some jurisdictions have more crimes than other jurisdictions. Um, so you, know, you can commit, there are more possibilities for you to be in the system. So it is quite hard to compare. However, uh, there is um, evidence that the reoffending rate in Norway is very low compared to um, uh, certainly America or, or, or the UK. Uh, And that's something Norwegians are very proud of and and talk about. So um, with the the proviso, they do seem to have uh, a better system if it's about reducing uh, re-offending. On the weekend prisons, this is something that um, uh, apparently Michael Gove is looking at. Um, I think there are two things to say. Uh, One is, if someone is safe enough to be in the community Monday to Friday, why put them in prison Saturday and Sunday, you know? Um, and secondly, it practically doesn't save you any money because you have to have the cell. The cell is, has to be there and it has to be, you know, um, sitting from Monday to Friday. It's actually not being used. So that's an even less economic uh, use of that resource uh, than when you're filling it all week. So I'm not, I'm not sure how, how, whether this will go very far um, as, as an idea, but it has actually been tried by the UK government before, and it was dropped in the end uh, uh, because the courts weren't using it um, particularly. Um, but we'll see. Do
0: you want to come yeah, in on that?
1: Yeah, can I just
3: uh, say about something about both of those? I mean, it, I think it is very difficult, probably, to say to, to compare recidivism rates uh, very clearly. I mean, one thing is is just that. Uh, there's what criminologists talk about as an age crime curve. So, so m- most crimes are committed by people under the age of 25 or 27 or something like that. And, you know, I, as you start to thicken up those kinds of social connections that Kimberly's talking about, then you know you, you tend to stop committing crimes. And so that's that's just a kind of phenomenon that people t- t- tend to tend to find. You know, that there's just a natural turn towards desistance. So if you've got people going into prison and, and having harsh sentences, not coming out and you know, going in at about the age of eighteen or twenty uh, and not coming out until their early thirties, then you know in a way that's already skewing things, you know, because <laughs> they're already now in a bit of their life where well, you know uh, I mean the, the fact of having been in, in prison may have uh, may, may have uh, uh, introduced a, a kind of complexity into it you 've got to start from scratch and so on, but in a way you 're in a bit of your life where you 're thinking differently about things at, at, at any rate so I, I think that 's another reason why it 's difficult to compare recidivism rates in, in a way um, i mean I, I, I suppose i 'm not so against the idea that weekend prisons might be just a way of. Of expressing disapprobation, or you know, just as a kind of punishment that's not so harsh and, and punitive. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with Andrew's point that um, you know, if you're safe enough to 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 be out Monday to Friday, then you're not you know you know public are not being protected by your being in uh, in prison only on the weekend. But if you think that imprisonment might serve. Uh, uh, purposes of accountability or or, you know punishment as such then there might be a role for that kind of thing
0: so yeah that would be the only thing okay well speaking of which let me put each of you on the spot here with this question of whether it's ever justified to incapacitate uh, somebody under any circumstances and I take it the, the assumption is not just in order to keep society safe whether there could be sort of additional reasons can we start with you
2: um, additional reasons, I think, no. That if, if the aim is to keep society safe, and someone is truly dangerous, just as someone can be truly, you know, highly contagious, um, you know, it's necessary to to quarantine people who are highly contagious. Necessary to quarantine or incapacitate people who are highly dangerous. I don't see any additional you know, additional reasons to do it. And I think when you do have to do that to someone, and it's it, it, it amounts to a conflict of rights. Um, you know, there's the you're doing it in the name of protecting other people's interests, protecting other people's rights, but that doesn't mean that the, the rights of the person you've incapacitated have disappeared, um, e- even when they've committed a serious offense. That it's in the name of you know, broader social social interest. And so you have to mitigate, the, you know, try and lessen the effect of that on them as much as possible. And so you know, that would mean trying to provide mediated contact um, you're trying to ensure their treatment isn't worse. You know, if you're if you're put in isolation in, ho- in a hospital, if you're put in medical quarantine, your ha- your care actually tends to be poorer. You're more, more likely to have pressure sores, more likely to fall, um, and so it sort of it just kind of goes with being isolated that your treatment is is less less good. Um, but uh, you know, when you're in a prison, you're in the care of the people, you know, who, who are managing it. And, you know, they control all all access, all resources you have. And, and when you incapacitate, you render someone utterly dependent on other people coming to them, providing them support and resources. And so, you know, it's necessary to to lessen the effects of that as much as possible.
0: Andrew?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the, um, there are people who commit serious and violent crimes and they are a threat to the public and therefore... Um, we require incapacitation, and um, prison is the 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 way that we've come up with delivering that. Um, I think there's a um, potential moral question coming coming towards us in the coming years with advances in medical science, um, where there will be. Um, potentially the ability to change people's behaviour through uh, medical intervention. There already is, for example, uh, programmes that some sex offenders can go on in prisons where their libido is reduced. And I think there are interesting kind of moral questions about imposing treatment on people. In in those programmes, they are voluntary, although there is a degree of... um, argument about how voluntary they really are because for the sex offenders in question, they're often on sentences where they have to show that they're progressing through their sentence. And so applying for those kinds of treatments can be seen as progressing through your sentence and help you eventually get your uh, release. So how voluntary it really is is is, is up for debate. But I think that uh, that that, and developments in technology as well, potentially, and how they could... um, again, as I say, impact people's behaviour, might uh, bring up very um, important moral questions to debate.
0: Chris, will you break the consensus on this question? (laughs) Uh, No. Um,
3: So, um, I mean, I guess uh, as a last resort, then I I suppose I think that uh, it probably can be uh, justified, Uh, I mean, I suppose there are just two questions uh, that is worth bearing in mind. I mean, incapacitation uh, is always going to have to be based on some kind of risk assessment. And I guess there's a question of how accurate those risk assessments uh, can be, who's carrying them out and and so on, uh, and, 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 you know, how how confident should we be epistemically in uh, psychiatric uh, risk assessments? Another question, uh, which is not just about the efficacy of the risk assessments, uh, but is about the way uh, the way it affects your way of seeing people, where you're seeing them as a, a risk to be managed, uh, and, and whether that in, in subtle ways is corrosive of the, the kind of trust and, and openness and kind of open heartedness that uh, well, is, is is essential for, well, certainly democratic society. I mean, ultimately democratic society is where people get together and, and decide how they're going to be governed. You can't do that with people who you're constantly seeing as a kind of potential threat and, and so on. So, I mean, just a, there's just a kind of worry about whether... Mm-hmm. T- treating someone or viewing someone as a fellow citizen, someone who you can do democratic business with is, is really compatible with, with viewing them as, as someone who you can subject to this kind of uh, risk assessment. I mean, I think, anyway, I agree that at the end of the day, you know, if you've got pretty good information that someone is going to go out and offend, then, you know, it could be negligent to, to not try and prevent that from happening. Um, but anyway, that's two sort of worries that I have about it.
0: So there's more or less consensus on the panel. I wonder if I could throw it open before we return to the question about privatisation. Is there anybody who thinks that there are circumstances where it would be justified to imprison somebody over and above keeping society safe, perhaps for retribution or punishment? Could we hear from you? Uh, could you just wait for the mic? That would be great. Okay, and there was the lady next to you as well who also had her um, hand up. Uh,
2: in a case of organized crime um, bosses, so if you look at the example of Italy, the only time that they came close, because they never actually did, Uh, to defeat mafia was when the law was enacted to give very harsh criminal sentences to bosses and to um, enact solitary confinement uh, for them. And so in that case, maybe can be useful for the bigger picture.
0: And this would be important not just for keeping them on their own and isolated, but also for punishing
2: them. Yeah, and also more than that, to break down the whole... uh, criminal um, environment that has um, taken place around them.
0: Okay, yeah. Perhaps I could put this back to you then.
1: Just um, on the, um, the serial killer point and, and Norway, as um, Norway is, um, as far as I'm aware, the only jurisdiction which has released a serial killer. Um, um, they have a a limit to how long anyone can go to prison. I think it's 20 years. Um, it's, it's an issue that um, came up with Anders Breivik. Um, uh, and I'm not sure quite how they're going to deal with, with um, the Breivik case. Um, but um, they have uh, released a serial killer at the end of, his, of, of the sentence. That serial killer is under community supervision, has not re offended. Um, So different jurisdictions can do things in different ways. Uh, But generally, I would have thought if someone is a serial killer, then they are a threat to the public.
0: Well, let's come back then to the question about uh, the economy. Is there room for private companies in prisons? Does that somehow detract from its social purpose? Who'd like to tackle that? So I think one sort of...
2: Bizarre consequence of privatization is you get uh, a, a somewhat paradoxical corporate interest in the perpetuation of crime. Um, you know, corporations obviously don't want to be the victims of crimes, but you know, corporations that are invested in, you know, having their prison facilities how you know fill of, filled with people you know, want crime to continue. And it, it, it's not solely true of, of corporations. You know, there's a lot of lawyers, you know, need, need work too, um, and, and prison officials in general. But there's something strange when we, when we subcontract that kind of work, when the public, you know, because criminal, criminal law, criminal justice is, is meant to be a public Type of of endeavor that these are public wrongs these are wrongs we as a community have reasons to be concerned about and feel as a community we should respond and condemn and so to to outsource that to a private corporation is really to abandon one of the responsibilities we have as a community to to say this is a problem that we want to address this is how we view it the way it should be responded to yeah
0: Andrew, have you come across privatisation in, in yes. your work? Yes, I mean, I mean, the
1: League has um, a, a, a s- strong anti-privatisation stance, particularly when it comes to, to prisons, because we do see prisons as primarily places of punishment, and we don't think people should be making a profit out of punishing other people. Um, I think there are other arguments against private prisons. Uh, for example, the, there is very little evidence they're any more effective... Um, arguably they're less effective because they, the reason we have private prisons is they're run more cheaply than the public prisons. Um, they employ less staff. They, they pay them less. They don't give them the same kind of pensions. Um, There's also an argument in America, at least, that a lot of the... I mean, the, 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 what in America really is mass incarceration is being driven in part by the role of the private sector because any business exists to grow that's how you make a profit well if you run in prisons that means you want to run more prisons Um, and there is um, uh, for example um, in California when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor he wanted to reduce the Californian prison population and his efforts to reduce that population were defeated by an alliance between the private companies that ran the prisons and the Californian Prison Officers Union, which had shares in the private companies that ran the prisons. That was quite a difficult lobbying um, axis for Schwarzenegger, even the, the Terminator, to, to beat.
0: <laughs> Chris, have you got thoughts on privatisation?
3: So, I, I mean, I, I think I just agree with uh, what, what's been said so, so far. I've got uh, you know, worries that the uh, entry of, of private uh, companies into the prison market is 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 bound to mean that decisions get made on the wrong sorts of reasons, you know, to, in the end to do with shareholder interest and, and keeping, you know, um, keep, keeping sh- uh, profits being made. Uh, and, I, and I also just think that um, there's something to this idea that uh, criminal justice is a public matter. It, it's done on behalf of the public uh, and, it, it, you know, it shouldn't be outsourced and and delegated to to private companies. Um, I think the question was actually in a way wider about whether there are interesting links between thinking about the economy... And um, uh, thinking about uh, criminal justice, and, uh, and I, I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff to be to be said there. I mean, Nicky Lacey, who you you mentioned before, has has written a, a a really interesting book called The Prisoner's Dilemma about the political economy of uh, of criminal justice and and the way in which different socioeconomic systems may go along with different kinds of levels of. of Penality or, or public support for really harsh sentences. Uh, and, and basically the, the model seems to be that where you've got more bonded uh, communities, then people feel the need to punish less and less harshly. Uh, and where you've got more kind of atomistic, uh, in, individualistic, um, um, you know, dare I say, neoliberal societies, uh, then you know, people are less trusting and they think that the only way to to uh, control the threat that's out there is by, by, by really uh, harsh punishment. So I think, anyway, that was just a kind of wider thing that I wanted to say. I think there are very interesting things to be said about you know, the relation between economic systems, generally speaking, and political economy and, and, and criminal justice.
1: Yeah, I, I just wanted to pick up on what Chris was saying. There is a lot of ev- research on public attitudes and punitiveness and it is absolutely true that um, when people are asked to think about criminals in the abstract, um, then they tend to be, you know, bang them up, lock, lock them up, throw away the key. Uh, when you talk about individuals and individual circumstances, it's very different um, and uh, so for example, if the main way that people learn about what's going on in the criminal justice system is through the national newspaper. The only crimes they ever hear about are the, the, the kind of worst crimes, um, and they, they, they hear about it in a very, uh, you know, they don't get all the evidence that the court gets. So, again, there's evidence that when members of the public are asked to come up with a sentence based on just media coverage and then come up with a sentence based on actually all the material that is before the court, they tend to be more lenient once they see all the material and they start to understand more of the story. Um, you know, it is it comes kind of comes down to this idea that um, a burglar is faceless. You want, you know, you just don't really want to think about it. Happy to be punitive, but then when it's Jack, who's the son of your next door neighbour, and you've known Jack since Jack was was a baby, and you know that Jack's dad left when he was five, and you know that the stepfather was an alcoholic who beat him, um, and you know that. He, he went on the downward spiral and got into trouble and that's why he's burgled someone's house, you're going to be more uh, forgiving.
0: Kimberly, we'll give you the last word on this. Does any of this fit with your social uh, model?
2: Yes, I think we should think about Jack.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, on that note, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thanks very much to our panel